Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcasts. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, France 24, and Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground interview with Dennis Kucinich. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. As a result of record numbers of immigrants since 2015, members of the European Union have agreed on sweeping reforms on the displaced and asylum seekers. It will be significantly harder to find refuge Welfare and health services will be denied to the undocumented, and deportations will be simplified. The agreement is very divisive both within and between countries. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Breaking news from Brussels. European Union countries have agreed on a series of sweeping reforms to its asylum system. After years of negotiations, member states agreed on new rules aimed at curbing irregular migration to the bloc. Migration has become a divisive issue across the EU, which has seen record numbers of migrants since 2015. DW Brussels correspondent Rosie Burchard is covering this. Hi, Rosie. How big is this agreement? Well, EU lawmakers are certainly describing it as historic, and I can certainly tell you that all the years I've been reporting on this in Brussels, this has been the most controversial, divisive, politically toxic issue between EU member states and different political groups. So in in the purely political sense, it does seem to be historic, and the fact that different parties here have been able to agree and to get this across the line, and we've certainly had the President of the European Parliament saying this is a sign that Europe can deliver, but of course, Ben, the question is, What can Europe deliver and how effective will it be? What will change under the new rules? Well, the important context to know here is that under European Union law, a migrant or asylum seeker has to claim asylum in the country where that person first arrived. And that certainly puts at least an administrative burden on coastal southern EU member states like Spain, Italy and Greece, where people tend to arrive. Now, under this reform, there will be increased what EU member states call solidarity. So essentially, a more equitable distribution of migrants and asylum seekers across the bloc. And countries which refuse to take in migrants or asylum seekers will be asked to contribute financially instead. Now, beyond that, there's also a more controversial part of this reform, and that is in order to essentially speed up deportations. Under the plan, migrants and asylum seekers will be vetted more thoroughly at the border and essentially separated according to how likely it is that their asylum request will be approved. Now, that will include setting up detention centres, which uh, NGOs and charities have criticised, human rights campaigners, for example, saying that is essentially uh, creating a fortress out of Europe and shirking responsibility. And last piece of this puzzle, I think, that's worth highlighting is a, a mechanism, a plan for what happens when the EU thinks a crisis is happening. So when large numbers of migrants and asylum seekers arrive at the EU shore, all at once and that will include allowing member states at that point to relax the rules so to, to 
to detain people for longer periods and that also is causing some controversy, particularly, as I said, among human rights campaigners that are not impressed by this reform, despite the fact that EU member states are certainly hailing this as a victory and proof that Europe can actually fulfil promises on an issue that we know is important to a lot of voters across this bloc. And how long till these reforms make some sort of impact, considering the huge scale of illegal immigration to the EU? Well, under the normal EU legislative period, this is going to be at least a couple of years before it kicks in. But it's important to know that while in the usual EU lawmaking procedure, this deal, which was done overnight, and I should say they really were up all night trying to strike this accord, that would usually mean that it's more or less a done deal. There are still some, some formalities to come, so formal ratification. And because this is such a politically controversial uh, accord, it could be that we still see some political roadblocks ahead. So I'll say, watch this space over the next few months. The we, what is worth noting is that there are European elections happening in the first half of next year. So really member states and the EU parliament will be driving to try and get a finalisation of this accord before then. DW correspondent Rosie Burchard, thank you. That interview is from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. Next, France 24. A press review on the French government passing its own controversial immigration reform bill as well, which the far-right National Party saw as an ideological victory. Many in the left are appalled at President Macron for supporting the changes. Then press reviews on the murdering of surrendering Israeli hostages by Israeli troops. At a Hanukkah celebration, President Biden stated that he did not trust the casualty figures in Gaza as they were reported by the health authorities in Gaza. Air Wars is a non-profit organization that compiles independent data on death toll in wars. They found that the deaths reported by Hamas were accurate and on a scale that they have not seen in any conflicts in the past 20 years. France 24 I imagine uh, the passing of that uh, very controversial uh, immigration bill here in France uh, is dominating French papers today. Yeah, there are a lot of headlines this morning that are sure to cause headaches uh, for the ruling party this morning from the left and the right, really. Now, I'll start with Libération, which takes a look at a quote from Macron in 2022. Uh, you, speaking to voters, you elected me uh, to create a barrier to prevent the far right from, from rising to power. I now know I, I will hold myself to, to, that, to that goal. Uh, and then you have Marine Le Pen uh, yesterday saying, for the national rally, the far right party, the immigration law is an ideological victory. So a radical change in, in just a year. Now, the paper Libération tells us that uh, in order to save this bill, Macron was forced to reach an agreement with the Republican Party, I quote, not even batting an eyelid at the xenophobic measures uh, that they push for, and which have historically uh, been championed primarily by the far right. Uh, L'Humanité, for its part, another left-wing paper, decries a sullied republic accusing the government of compromising, again, with the far right on a, quote, 
shameful text that essentially puts in place welfare chauvinism, establishing a preference that is for French-born citizens over foreigners. Uh, the paper saying that Macron, who once claimed to be a barrage, the last line of defense against Marine Le Pen, has now ended up elevating her, really. And then Mediapart, on that note precisely, goes even further than that uh, piece in L'Humanité. The headline uh, to the special on its homepage reading, and there you have it, the far right is now in power. The paper blasting a law that it says violates the most fundamental uh, human rights. The editorial also comparing this law to some of the darker texts that were passed in France in the late 1930s in the lead-up uh, to the Nazi occupation of, of certain parts of the country, uh, ultimately concluding that this law will not pass for us. Uh, we will not respect it because it does not respect uh, our humanity. And there are other papers here in France today, uh, more focused on how this immigration bill has divided Macron's government. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'll turn first uh, to L'Opinion, uh, Haxi, which is kind of a, a centrist-to-right paper. It, they say that it's created an all-out crisis for Macron, especially as more leftist members of his party uh, are now threatening to step down. Now, among them uh, are three ministers, including the health minister, who actually submitted uh, his letter of resignation late last night after that bill did, after that law passed. Now, for this paper, then, it's the end of Emmanuel Macron's both-sidism, which looked to kind of go beyond transcend the left-right divide. The paper saying that that left-right divide is, is now back, uh, and it will mark phase two of his second mandate. Right-wing paper Le Figaro is super interesting because even though its editorial its editorials often express really very harsh uh, anti-immigration opinions some that some would really deem uh, far-right, this time it actually doesn't say as much about the law itself as it does about the process that it went through to finally be passed. Le Figaro attributes the success to the Republican Party, which it says turned a weak text into an offensive law, the editorial, a law on the offensive, rather. Uh, the editorial adding that the final result is crystal clear proof that Macron Macronism is a synonym for inconsistency. There are new revelations uh, that the three Israeli hostages accidentally killed by the Israeli army had written help, also SOS, on the building that they'd been staying in. What are papers saying about that today, Aaron? Yeah, they had written that both in Hebrew and in English, help and SOS. Now, an editorial in the Jerusalem Post today essentially argues that the Israeli public uh, has accepted that Israel must do whatever it takes and for however long it takes to complete its stated goal of eliminating Hamas during this uh, operation in the Gaza Strip. The implication, of course, being that this is simply a tragic consequence of what's turning into one of the country's longest and most intense uh, wars. The piece ultimately concluding that the incident didn't really lead to any more than a few um, scattered uh, calls to reassess the operation, suggesting that the public simply accepts the risks involved. Now, I have a totally different editorial piece from Haaretz, uh, the editorialist writing that she wants to believe the IDF claim that the Israeli military does not shoot people uh, who have surrendered, but she says that's just not credible. I quote, the bombs falling on Gaza have also killed thousands of people who are begging for their lives. Uh, Israeli soldiers have also, she writes, uh, shot unarmed civilians in incidents that have been captured on camera, not only in Israel, but also in the West Bank and in Gaza, she adds, suggesting that the military really needs to change course if it wants to have a legacy that's anything other than a colossal failure. How can the deaths of Palestinians in Gaza be monitored by outside organizations? More than 18,700 people have been killed in 10 weeks. The figures are coming from health authorities under the control of Hamas in Gaza. The credibility of statistics 
undermined by sceptical world leaders, including President Biden, who said he would question those figures early on in the conflict. Well, for today's perspective, we can speak to Emily Tripp from the UK-based not-for-profit transparency watchdog uh, Air Wars. It's an open-source uh, organisation that uses data to try to corroborate, for example, at the moment, the death toll in Gaza. Let's bring in Emily. Your organisation has been going now for a decade, looking at several conflict zones. Tell us about the work that's going on in Gaza right now. What we're seeing in Gaza is is on a scale that we haven't seen uh, ever. And, and we've monitored, as you said, for more than a decade, um, we've monitored conflicts um, over the past 20 years, including the war against ISIS. Um, what we're seeing now, I mean, we're an organization that looks particularly at every single harm allegation, and we try and document every single one. And then we preserve digitally all of the information that comes out uh, for each case. And as I said, I mean, what, what we've seen, we've now got more than 1,700 individual allegations. Each one of those will have dozens potentially of casualties uh, attached. I can say from what we're doing, we do have some indicative um, findings which are corroborating um, the Ministry of Health death toll. Um, when they released uh, on the 26th of October, the Ministry of Health um, released a list of names, uh, including IDs of individuals who'd been killed. Um, and part of what we've been doing is uh, matching those individual uh, names with uh, specific incidents of harm. Um, we've already found uh, about 200 uh, children within that list that we've been able to identify two very particular cases uh, and airstrikes where, where they were killed. Um, so I can say that while it may take us a, a very long time, each case is extremely complex. Each, each case is taking a while because um, families are still kind of buried in, in the rubble. Um, being able to identify survivors is becoming increasingly uh, difficult, particularly with information blackouts. In the past, it is worth saying the UN looked at these figures with some credibility from Hamas-run health authorities in Gaza. They looked at the situation from the brief conflict in 2021. You also looked at that data and your findings were quite similar to the Hamas figures. Is that right? Yes, indeed. Um, in 2021, we did the same as we're doing now. We documented every single case where a civilian was harmed. Um, and we found that, indeed, the Ministry of Health uh, data overall was very much consistent, not just with what we were seeing, but also with organizations on the ground like Al-Mazan, um, who do incredible work uh, documenting kind of, um, you know, witness testimonies and, and observations. Um, so, yes, I mean, they they have historically been consistent. And I think that's something that other organisations, for example, Human Rights Watch, have also uh, supported in the past. Those press reviews and interview were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could help support this listener-funded program, like a dedicated listener in Ultrek Netherlands did this week, contact information is available at my website outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations around the world. We will conclude with an excerpted interview with Dennis Kucinich by Afshin Ratansi on his program Going Underground. They discuss the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, funded by U.S. taxpayers and supported by a strong majority of both U.S. political parties. 
Also, the U.S. veto of ceasefire resolutions at the United Nations and Netanyahu's plan to fully destroy and occupy the Gaza Strip and West Bank. He says that the U.S. has lost its moral authority and world opinion by funding the wars in Palestine and Ukraine, going underground. Veteran Ohio congressman and former Democratic presidential contender Dennis Kucinich is calling for a ceasefire in Palestine and the end of NATO-backed war against Russia through Ukraine. He joins me again from Cleveland in Ohio. How is uh, Biden able to continue arming Israel to commit uh, genocide in Gaza when the whole world, I think even Canada, voted against the United States? Even Britain abstained uh, on this ceasefire uh, resolution at the United Nations General Assembly. Well, uh, Israel and the United States are, are really in this together, but 99% of the world is asking for another direction or asking for a ceasefire. And not only is um, the Netanyahu government accelerating the carnage, but they're now talking about waging war against the West Bank. And so um, this is part of a larger plan to ethnically cleanse uh, Palestinians out of territories so they can be claimed as part of a larger plan that Netanyahu's ultra-nationalist partners have been advocating for quite some time. I mean, clearly your calls for a ceasefire have been so loud, you've got laryngitis. How does the mass killing of children in any conceivable way help uh, or geopolitical way help the United States uh, in this world? Well, you know, that question answers itself. This is heartbreaking. I mean, I, I mourn the loss of, of Israeli children. I, I mourn the loss of Palestinian children. But we have to remember that the carnage that's being waged in Gaza is wholly disproportionate. And it's, it's a war of choice against the Palestinians. It could hardly be called a war because there's a little mutuality in an exchange of, uh, of force. This war is not making uh, Israelis safe or Jews safe anywhere in the world. Uh, it is widely viewed by the rest of the world as being a vengeful act. Uh, as being ethnic cleansing, as being genocide, as being a massacre. And there are those who wrongly blame all Jews for that. This is the Netanyahu administration. And this is their plan, this, their, their program. And we, um, we have to be mindful that the members of that administration who are ultra-nationalists have long held a plan to... Uh, eliminate Palestinians from from Gaza and the West Bank, and for that matter, southern Lebanon. There's a number of things wrong with this. Uh, one is that there there is uh, discrimination against Jews all over the world, and it's accelerating because of this war. But the thing that I'm concerned about, as someone who actually considers himself a friend of Israel, This could lead to the destruction of Israel itself because the people, notwithstanding what governments do in the Middle East, the people in these various nations that are the neighbors of uh, of Israel are are watching every day 
the deaths of women and children and and not other and men who are non-combatants. And there's only so much that people can tolerate in their hearts. We understand that Jews were traumatized uh, across the generations by the Holocaust. How could they not be? But one must not take that trauma and uh, deal with it by inflicting uh, the same kind of punishment on other people. And uh, this is exactly what's happening. And it is, uh, it is a great tragedy, but it's a matter of choice. And the United States has been fully behind Israel. Make no mistake about it. President Biden is fully behind Israel in this endeavor. And he may scold Prime Minister Netanyahu. He may tell him to stop. But he's also pro providing the weapons to continue and, and is seeking even more. So I stand for the survival of Israel. I stand for the survival of the Palestinians. I, I think we have to be on the side of peace. That's the side that the world ought to be on. And instead, what's happening is that uh, through propaganda and other means, there's an attempt to justify the mass killing of Palestinians. There is no justification for that, just as there is no justification for the deaths of the 1,200 Israelis who perished on October 7th. Now, you know, you can get into the history, and I'm fully aware of the history, but I'm not for killing. And once you, once you start to justify murder, you become uh, involved in a cycle of violence that never stops. And this is as old as, as humanity. Look, we have a uniparty right now when it comes to war, and that's a problem. I find it um, heartbreaking to uh, see ethnic cleansing, massacres, genocide inflicted on, on the Palestinians. Uh, the world is crying out for not just a ceasefire, but for a means of, of settling uh, the differences that exist between the parties. We thought Oslo was going to do that now. Prime Minister Netanyahu is not only talking about ripping up Oslo, but he's uh, ready to launch a military attack against West Bank and the Palestinian Authority there. Let's go deeper into this. This really is a time for a reappraisal of the United States' role in the world and of our willingness to support violence anywhere and everywhere in the world. We need a, a, a policy, an international policy, that can work with the nations of the world and, 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 and not as a, um, as a unipolar nation, but through cooperation. Our efforts, uh, successful efforts, for, unfortunately, to cut off communication with Russia has resulted in uh, Russia beginning to separate from the West itself. There's nothing good that can come out of that. We, we're creating new power blocks as a result of our willingness to participate in aggression. And, you know, it's the reason for that BRICS uh, was created. It's, and, and, it's, and you know what? It doesn't work. Our, the U.S. involvement in, in Ukraine was a disaster. The United States made a strategic mistake, in, uh, a colossal mistake, in designing to overthrow of a Ukrainian government and then designing to turn that into 
the overthrow of the Russian government. It was sheer folly, and the people who uh, charted that course uh, should never be near a decision-making of any kind on behalf of the United States. It has been a triple canopy disaster uh, for the Ukrainian people, uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths of the, of the lifeblood of the nation, and uh, for Russia and the people in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, a continuation of the violence that they were trying to get out of, that Russia, by virtue of its constitution, was compelled to defend uh, those provinces. The United States understood that. We proceeded anyway to fund a war, uh, thinking that there'd be some kind of attrition, uh, thinking that the sanctions would undermine Russia. They didn't do that, thinking that the disruption in energy supplies would hurt Russia. That didn't happen, thinking that uh, they'd wear Russia's army down. That didn't happen. That could have all been predicted right at the beginning. I want to go back to what I started to say. America's international policy is totally flawed. We're creating enemies instead of working to create friends. It's about the policy itself. And Mr. Biden became an instrument of it. His predecessors were instruments of it. And this is the way American foreign policy works right now. But unless it changes, we're going to be looking at a regional war, and it could uh, trigger World War III. There's a limit to how much other nations in the Middle East are going to tolerate the destruction of the culture and, and the buildings and the, the society uh, in, in Gaza and in West Bank. There's a limit. Uh, the U.S. is losing whatever moral authority it had left by continuing to fuel the attacks and the deaths of the uh, Palestinian. And again, I want to state because, you know, every criticism of the war that's uttered uh, inevitably brings back charges of anti-Semitism. We must proceed with respect uh, for each other. I support the existence of the state of Israel. I do not support the uh, annexation that is underway. I do not support the ethnic cleansing, the genocide that's taking place. You know, no matter how you dress it up, let's get real. That's exactly what's happening. And the United States is complicit in that. If you give somebody guns to commit a crime, you get charged in state courts in, this country, in, in America. And we're giving the guns into, to Israel. And, you know, you can't simultaneously tell uh, the, Mr. Netanyahu that, hey, stop it. <laughs> but there's a load of weapons. Do whatever, you know, do whatever you want. Well, I mean, what does Mr. Biden think <laughs> Mr. that uh, Netanyahu is going to do with those weapons? We must stop this. It, it's not just about a ceasefire. We have to cease war. We have to cease war as an instrument of policy. We, we have to end war once and for all, or war will end us. And it's mind-blowing that in the 21st century, we're still dealing with these questions about, about war and justifying it. My concern is that this uh, drumbeating, this depraved thinking about continuing war, if they ignite a war against Iran, it'll, it'll go global. It will dramatically change uh, our life here in this country. We should be working with Iran to settle any differences that exist. 
Dennis Kucinich, thank you. That excerpted interview with Dennis Kucinich was by Afshin Matansi from his twice-weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afshin did with Julian Assange and many others. Search for Going Underground at Rumble.com or at Apple Podcasts. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people, like you, to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.